The, the thing about introversion and leadership is that because of the way that quiet people and introverts' brains are wired, they tend to have a slower processing time. They take much more time to absorb and consider things. So decisions become much less black and white. It's got to be this or it's got to be that. And it, it, it goes towards, well, it could be a load of different things, really, and we need to weigh them all up and take our time over this. You're getting to a much better considered solution that benefits everybody in the long run and doesn't end up setting a polarization or between the extroverts that are sure they've got the right answer and the introverts that are saying, well, hold on a minute, I need another week to think about this. And culturally within organizations, if you don't build in the thinking time for quiet people and introverts, you just miss out on so much really powerful, well-considered thinking. Welcome to the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. This is a podcast for people who look at business differently. It's for founders, freelancers, change makers, and freedom seekers who want to make money, do good, and be happy. We choose the path of the happy entrepreneur not to get rich, but to express ourselves and serve others in the most authentic way we can. Many of us couldn't find our role by working for others, and so we chose to work for ourselves. We took the more uncertain path, not because we wanted to, but because we needed to. We value learning, play, and friendship, and we have a need to make a meaningful impact in the world. By following the path of the happy entrepreneur, we learn as much about ourselves as we do about business. On this podcast, I have conversations with other happy entrepreneurs from different walks of life, industries, and countries. We talk about the journey and about what we learned about ourselves along the way. For us, entrepreneurship isn't just a way to make money, but a journey of self-discovery and growth. If you're on the same path and are looking for inspiration and connection, then this podcast is for you. It's perfectly possible to be shy, quiet, or introverted and get on in the world. However, on social media, all we seem to see are the loudmouth extroverts who are smashing it and trying to sell us another transformational po- program that will help us make six figures in sales. Unfortunately, those voices have dominated the world of entrepreneurship, making the less assuming ones of us feel inadequate and not knowing how to market ourselves authentically. In this fun and informative conversation with Pete Mosley, author of The Art of Shouting Quietly, we hear an alternative story of success. What if getting known and marketing yourself wasn't about shouting loudly, but shouting quietly? In his book, he asks, what if it is as simple as employing your best listening skills and learning the art of well-crafted questions? During this conversation, we talk about different models of success and being aligned to our true values. We discuss the importance of sharing our ideas with others who show ruthless compassion rather than well-meaning criticism. And we also cover the idea of getting help from others to market what we do so that we don't feel like that we're always having to talk about ourselves. The invitation to introverted entrepreneurs is to find a way to get your message out into the world that aligns with your nature and arises above the noise. In this episode, Pete shares how you can do this. Enjoy. Morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you are. Welcome to the Friday Fireside with the Happy Startup School. Uh, It's me, Carlos, and uh, my co-founder, Lawrence. 
Uh, and today we are joined by the lovely, the wise, uh, the very, I think, yeah, I am digging myself for a hole, but no, there's something about this, this approachable. I was, that's the word I was looking for because he's someone who I really kind of like, you know, it feels like someone who I always want to listen to. And yes, it's Pete Mosley. Um, veteran of our summer camps, a, a long-time friend and and teacher, uh, like everyone that we try to bring onto these podcasts. Um, how are you, Pete? Very well indeed, thank you. Nice to be here. Looking forward to it. And and where are you sat at the moment? So everyone, I'm knows. in Loughborough in the East Midlands, smack bang in the middle of the country, about as far away from the seaside as you can get. And actually, I'd really like to be on a beach somewhere right now. Especially middle of the week with nobody there, but it'll be a while before I get to do that. <laughs> and how's your day been so far? Hey, pretty good so far. So, a nice slow start today uh, for the Friday, which is a pleasant thing. So this is the, this is the first big bit of interaction for the day. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Awesome. How about you, Lawrence? How are you doing today? Uh, yeah, not bad. Getting ready for Super Saturday. <laughs> is your uh is your liver ready for it no i'm i, I just um yeah i'm okay <laughs> i uh actually just got off the back of listening to louis through grounded podcast so uh yeah like him feeling the kind of like the novelty's worn off a bit now <laughs> yeah who was it who was it on louis through today for you uh chris o'dowd oh cool yeah he's good friends with him so it's quite funny Actually, one of the you know, th this feels like a parallel to that, um, and this idea of just having conversations during the lockdown period with people who are well, people who are experiencing it, uh, and also hopefully sharing some thoughts and ideas of how to cope during this process and, and, and other other bits of wisdom. Um, yeah, I am feeling I'm feeling good today. I've just spent uh, half an hour painting stones with my daughter, so it's a nice mindful act trying to find a face in a stone and then trying to to paint it and while at the same time and the back of my mind thinking i've got to do a webinar in about 30 minutes <laughs> so not as mindful as i'd hoped but trying to get there um so lucky for us uh or, or maybe just by design 100 percent of the people who've who've uh, responded to the poll so far are <laughs> introverts <laughs> so yeah i think we're we're all in the right place here um, yeah. And it's a lovely uh, turnout. We've got about well over fifty people now live, so thank you so much for joining mm. us. That's really great. Uh, as we continue with this conversation as well, uh, if you have any questions and so we don't lose them within the chat itself, uh, please post that uh, question in the ask a question feature, and that will mean that we'll be able to find that question easily. And we'll probably uh, towards the end of the conversation, we'll try and focus on. On the questions themselves uh, but before we kick off uh with with anything too too heavy i think what would be good to start off with is this idea of um introversion and what that means for you pete mm. so that, uh, okay. we feel that everyone's got the right idea when we're talking about being an okay. introverted yeah. entrepreneur <laughs> yeah well, introversion was coined as a thing in, I think it was 1926, uh, by Jung, a psychologist. It's been around as a concept for a very long time. And even back then, he acknowledged that it was a thing that was to do with energy. 
and the introverts generally like a lot of time on their own and space to recharge and find social interaction really quite exhausting. But I mean, a lot of time has passed since then, and a lot of the scientific study around introversion has very much changed the way that people are thinking about it. I'm thinking about it has changed somewhat from the day that I first discovered introversion and went, oh my goodness me, that explains lots of the things that I thought had been really odd about my own behaviour for a very long time. I'm not quite as bonkers as I thought I was. I'm an introvert, and that was great. Um, but as you learn about the roots of introversion and where it comes from, it ceases to be as simple as a, a continuum from very introvert to very extrovert with ambivert somewhere in the middle. Because it tends to combine with lots of other things and part of it is a genetic thing. My dad was an introvert and I know that I got some of my introversion from him. Um, your childhood and the way that you're brought up is a factor in how you behave as an introvert. If you've experienced childhood trauma in any way, that can influence whether you turn out as an introvert or an extrovert and tied into the limbic system and whether you're a, a person that, that flees from conflict or freezes in the face of it. Uh, introverts tend to be more freezers in that uh, definition of it. I prefer to think of it much more simply in that all introverts and quiet people pop up in different places with their skills and for some reason I'm a deeply shy person that doesn't tolerate things like dinner parties very well when I'm stuck in a small talk with people but I love getting up in front of an audience and you know a couple of hundred people and I'm happy as Larry presenting in front of them. How does that work? Yeah. Um, it's about finding your own uh, place within the realm of introversion and, and quiet in actual fact. I much prefer the term quiet because that embraces a much larger uh, congregation of people that have the same kind of behaviours and preferences really. If we look at it on that, it's much easier to find a place for yourself that doesn't tie you down to, oh yes, I'm an ambivert or I'm mm -hmm. an extroverted introvert or all sorts of awkward phrases that I hear people use to try and explain who they are and what they do. You, you're you, you know, and you're unique and it's just about navigating the world in your own special way. I think, well, that definitely resonates in trying not to put people into into buckets and, and label them as what that means in terms of what they do. But in the spirit of bucket putting, Lawrence, what would, what would you, how would you class yourself? Uh, someone who hates labels. <laughs> An entrepreneur. Um, no, I jest. I, yeah, like, it's interesting what you said there, Pete, about, you know, how comfortable you are in front of a crowd, but not, I'm probably the opposite. I'm, I'm less comfortable on stage, but more comfortable with a small group even if I don't know everyone. Um, but yeah, I would say I'm an introvert. I don't, um, I get most of my energy on my own, but I need, I still need energy from other people, I would say. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not as comfortable as I'd say Carlos is maybe with uh, being on stage presenting, you know, yeah, it's not my, not my bag really. The quiet, like when I read your book, that hit home for me. It was just, how can you, how can I and we and all of us get our word out there in a way that's true to us without feeling like it's trying to be someone else? And that, yeah. that for me, when I understood that, I was like, okay, I can be myself and talk about what I do without having to be someone else, having to put on this persona of an extrovert. 
Um, and that's, yeah, that was a breakthrough for me. Right. What would you say, Carlos, when you think of this? I, yeah, I oscillate now. And I think, yeah, Lucy just says she's with you, Lawrence. Because um, on one hand, I do get, I do get a lot of energy by being in crowds. I really, I really enjoy the feedback or that, or just maybe it's just some an attention seeker. Um, but I also, I also need my own space to to recover from that. Um, I'm quite, you know, to be, even during this past three and a half months, I've been quite happy being on my own. <laughs> in terms of, it hasn't been the best, but it hasn't been torture either. In terms of, like, I'm, I can really, I'm happy to, to I'm happy with my own company. But I also know that when I'm with a group of people, I just get a lot of energy from that as well. And so, but I do identify more with being, I, if I someone asked me, why are you extrovert? I would immediately, introvert springs to mind. I don't know why, but there's something around, I think I really cherish that alone time. <laughs> you spent about five years in a lab, didn't you? So you can't, you can't be that much of an extrovert. <laughs> well, that, well, I think that's the... Um, it's an interesting thing. My my wife and I were talking about what this has done. This you know period of lockdown has done for some people, and our experience of of, of essentially when we were doing our PhDs and writing, you you are on your own. So anyone who's done that have had to sit on their own and write for a long time. This is kind of like part of the course. But yeah. um, at the same time, I got out of that world because I was so lonely. <laughs> Just being on your own, doing your own work, it can it can draw drain the energy out of you. But on that note of, you know, maybe identifying with the idea of being introverted and, and I like essentially, essentially look, Pete, when you're talking about being quiet, I think that's a really mm -hmm. important thing there rather than thinking, okay, because when, when I get the impression, when people say that I'm an introvert, it means that I'm kind of powerless, less able to lead, command, do things. But there's, I think there's a superpower in that silence. Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe talk to that about you know the the beneficial qualities of being quiet maybe. Yeah, I mean the the thing about introversion and leadership is that because of the way that quiet people and introverts' brains are wired, they tend to have a slower processing time. They take much more time to absorb and consider things and put many more filters in the thinking process than your average extrovert does. So decisions become much less black and white. It's got to be this or it's got to be that. And it, it, it goes towards, well, it could be a load of different things, really. And we need to weigh them all up and take our time over this. So by the time you get to a solution, or, or more likely you present a range of options to your team and say, you know, I'm not making this decision. You know, here it is. Let, these are the options. Let's discuss that and, and get some consensus around it you're getting to a much better considered solution that benefits everybody in the long run and doesn't end up setting a polarization or between the extroverts that are sure they've got the right answer and the introverts that are saying, oh, hold on a minute, I need another week to think about this. You know, and then um, I might just come up with some useful stuff for you. And culturally within organizations, if you don't build in the thinking time for quiet people and introvert, you just miss out on so much really powerful, well-considered thinking. Yeah, there's, um, it's quite interesting when, when you say that because there's, I find uh, part of the work that we've been doing, there's this, this balance between having a considered approach or you know looking at all the angles. And then this fine line of tipping over into overthinking. 
mm-hmm. and then spiraling into too many what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I feel there's something there to stop us doing that. But I don't know if you had any ideas of what can, you know, when you get into analysis paralysis is essentially what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a different thing. I totally agree there's a thing called analysis paralysis, but anybody can get into that, you know, and it's just something we've got to be really aware of. And to be aware that, you know, if you're working with introverts, you just don't send them off and leave them be. There's got to be some kind of point at which you say, well, we'll all come back together now and consider this. I suppose the difference would be in a traditional meeting, people turn up for the meeting, they possibly haven't even read the notes or the the agenda before they get there. And then they expect to reach some conclusions by the end of it. And then everybody goes away and forgets about the whole thing, which just leaves the introverts that are trying to take part in that shocked and stunned because they probably will have read the agenda and considered the stuff. But then they get no platform within the meeting because everybody else is rattling away trying to get to the solution and the answer to that culturally is to build thinking time in before the meeting and thinking time and reflection time after the meeting before everybody comes back and gets to discussing what the decision or conclusion should be now all the noisy people will say hold on that's a real waste of time you know how how enough can we invest the extra hour that might be involved in that the truth is you save that hour further down the line because you've actually got to the right answer and you don't end up rediscussing it 50 million times because everybody's still disagreed on what's involved so there's a culture change really needs to be put in place there it's not just up to the introverts in the team to come up with solutions really although there are some tips and tricks that i can offer up for them well, that'd be very useful. Now, I'm just curious there about the whole reflective time and what that means to you, Lawrence, and the whole kind of, you know, we did that whole day of nothing and that's it feels connected. Yeah, well, I'm always wary of that stuff, whether you do it with the intention of I need to use that space or reflective time to solve a problem or to come up with a new idea or make a decision. I think sometimes it's nice to go into those spaces without an intention. Otherwise, I find you... Well, you're not present because you're trying to mm. solve a problem, but also you close down the door to serendipity maybe of what might come up. Mm. So I think there's value in creative time, let's call it, where you can reflect and as an introvert, tap into what's inside you, whether it's writing or, you know, um, creating something new. But yeah, I still think, I think there's someone put there that, you know, it's not just as simple as, you know, the introverts are the ones who make all the decisions reflectively. And those that are more extrovert don't. Um, yeah, I think it's what, ultimately it comes down to what works for you, really. And I, fi- I find a flow that works for me, but I still also need the energy of other people to bounce off. Um, and I actually find I get en- a lot of energy from extrovert people. So if I don't have that almost yin and yang, then it, it doesn't work as well for me. So maybe like you, spending a room with loads of introverts for five years in a lab isn't <laughs> the way you want to spend your time. <laughs> I'd just like to pick up on that comment about the, the it was what I said could be read as a generalization and I don't mean all talkative people are unable to reflect on things that's plainly not true. Um, I am specifically talking about how you create space for introverts to uh, feel included and empowered I think when they sometimes don't. 
So in doing that, I'm not denigrating fast thinkers or talkative people at all. There's something there around kind of deep listening and being uh, mindful of what people are mm. either saying or even not saying. Mm. And it's something that I found very much in the the Ideas Cafe events that we run, where we have a group of people um, and we try and get them together to solve their problems together. And you can see very quickly the people who are eager to share their opinions, i.e. the talkative mm. ones, and the ones who are really trying to understand what what is this person trying to say or what, what is the real problem or challenge here. Um, yeah. So there's something around, and I like, you know, the thinking, the fast and slow, the, the, instinct, the instinct and then the considered aspect of it. And, it, and that's why I think we were talking before about the, the difference between analysis paralysis and being reflective. And maybe you made the right distinction there, but there is a benefit to be able to make a really clear decision quickly as long as it comes from the right place. Yeah, I think there's something about creating a safe container within which everybody gets to contribute. Um, the coach and writer Nancy Klein has got a wonderful book called Time to Think, where she explores a thing called the thinking environment, which is about democratic use of time in meetings. And it gives everybody the chance to think and contribute without talking over each other, because there are rules in place that stop the talking over. Uh, that reminded me of in the late 70s, when I first got involved in facilitation, we used to do this thing in, in meetings where we'd take a ball of wool and every time we'd pass the ball of wool around, every time somebody spoke, they'd wrap it around their finger and then pass it on to somebody else. So by the end of the meeting, you ended up with this beautiful spider where the wool illustrated the nodes where all the talking had taken place. You only had to do this once or twice in a team before people went, yeah, okay, <laughs> now, here is my hand heavily tied in wool. I respect the fact that I'm possibly talking more than I should have done. It's very primitive, but it worked. Um, so it's, it's about creating the space for involvement and, and engagement. Really. I love that idea. We need that Ideas Cafe next time we do it live. <laughs> Maybe not during a pandemic. Not during a um, pandemic, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we can find a uh, digital way of doing that. But um, so, yeah, uh, on that point of the the loud talkers, and so you're talking about creating a safe space. So, the, unfortunately, the, it's a classic. Any situation, the people with the loudest voice usually mm -hmm. kind of push things in the direction that, that they want to go. Um, and I find that also in the idea just this broader idea of business and entrepreneurship is the people with the loudest voice seem to define what success looks like and i it, it all it takes is just going on to my youtube channel or facebook page where people are like talking about how you can make this much money by doing this thing on amazon or how you can develop your seven figure income strategy by doing x y and z and that suddenly just becomes the full measure of success the only measure of success and so I'm curious about, you know, by talking, you know, in your philosophy of being quiet, what that means also about being confident about what success means to you and talking to how people might navigate that or get to that place where they don't feel, oh, no, I'm not like them, so I'm never going to be yeah. successful. Yeah. 
It, it's, it's hugely important, and I would say in most of the transformational coaching conversations I have, it's probably one of the first stopping off points is getting to grips with what success actually means to you. Because the worst thing that can happen is that you make your decision about what success ought to be based on comparisonitis. And we all fall into this. We see other people doing loads of stuff and you think, I, I'm missing out here. I ought to be like that. I ought to be doing those things or confirming or conforming rather to those societal constructs of what success is which is a huge pitfall because if you try and follow those and those things don't mesh with your internal values, you're just going to grind to a halt anyway. Um, so whether you're a Roman Catholic hermit who does their work, you know, in, in, in the love of, of God or whether you're a, a multimillionaire that just wants to make loads of money, the first thing is to be sure that your model of success is appropriate to you but the next thing is, does it mesh with your own internal values? And then you might just have a chance of making a success out of it, whatever it is. And without doing that digging, very easy to fall adrift. You, you follow the wrong map or you set off down a route encouraged to do so by somebody else and then find later on um, that it's not the thing that was for you. Uh, you, put, you put up that lovely little snippet about the seed uh, when you were trailing this um, thing. There was a dentist that I worked with uh, who was just a very, very successful practice, doing extremely well out of it, but all he'd ever wanted to be was a fine artist, and he was giving up his practice uh, to, to you know, set up an artist studio. And it was quite, he was a good artist as well. But it was his mum and dad, of course, that said, no, you'll be, a, you'll be a dentist or a lawyer or an accountant. Which one will you choose? That's an astounding way just to get put off the thing that's at the core of you. So getting to the core of you, getting to what it is that's really going to drive you along is immensely important. Everything else becomes easier. The confidence comes with that, I think, when you're sure of your foundations. Yeah, there's <clears throat> when you talk about getting to the core and it's, it's that those um, those dreams that you may have had as a young kid of what you would love to have done or what was possible and then the doubt that comes in because parents society friends school whatever it may be just like don't do that that's not the way to be successful yeah <laughs> uh, my, my dad my dad always used to say to me peter you're a jack of all trades and i took it as a compliment it wasn't actually intended as a compliment he thought i was complete dilettante dibbling with this and that all over the place I took it as an instruction and for the rest of my life set about trying to learn as much about every single thing I could within the allotted time. Uh, and it's fine to be multi-potentialite. You know, it's fine to be good at a number of things, but you don't want to fall into it if it's not the thing that's for you, really. Mm. I think that's one of the challenges I see a lot is this feeling of, you know, I've, I've had this career for so long and I've done invested all this time on this path to move away from it is essentially wrong because mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, I've wasted all that time. Um, but in fact, I think there's, there's something around actually, maybe you're going to waste even more time and because you're not, yeah. you're not honoring those things that you really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think a good thing uh, is to, to, once you've established the, the values that you think drive you along, is to really test it. I think there's three levels you can test on. One is, first of all, is the concept right for you? You've written this word down, it has a specific meaning, does that feel right? You know, does it sound like a value? The next is when you come to try and enact them. And you see lots of companies doing this both well and really badly when they come to enact customer service values. And some of them get it brilliantly right, and some of them get it gloriously wrong, don't they? So you know something, the culture's not quite right there when the people that are carrying out the values on the shop floor, as it were, are getting it wrong, and that happens a lot. The third level is when one embodies one's values and that's quite a rare thing. You're, you're connecting to your values at a head, heart, and gut level. And when you see somebody doing that and behaving and living the life in that way, it's a truly fabulous thing. You often see it with people like a, a really, really good maitre d' in a, a really good restaurant embodies the values of the restaurant and the organization. And it has this fantastic helicopter-style awareness of everything that's going on in every corner, even the bits they can't see, and they know what's happening, and you end up with this seamless service as a result of it. I think the other people that really embody their values for me are vets. You know, the willingness to pull on a great big rubber glove and really get stuck in about your job says the same thing to me. You know, you're getting to grips with your the thing you really love to do in a way that is inarguable. And that's what I mean when you're embodying your values. And if, if you can get to that space within your business, you, you're going to do some real good stuff. I love the maitre d' story. It reminds me of a story my father told me recently. Um, he used to be a waiter in Berlin. Uh, and his boss, uh, and this is, I think, just after well basically he's in the 60s and so it was, it was all split up with lots of american generals there and he just was in awe of his boss because as soon as someone came in he knew exactly what table what they were going to drink what food they liked everything and this guy this general or whoever this big wig would just feel like the most special person in the world and this guy it seemed natural and then my dad found out he had this massive book <laughs> of the names of every single person and just list but it was that is that real pride and embodiment the yeah. service and and trying to help but yeah it just it made me think of that and how you do your yeah. best work when you're really impassionate about that that, uh, that way of doing things um but yeah i know what, what about you lawrence in terms of his idea of values and embodying them in, and and making them part of your work does anything spring to mind uh, well, I think what struck me when you were talking, Pete, was the, well, one thing is, I think, how to help people to dial down maybe the external, like comparisonitis, which I love, um, the idea of, I think, not just comparing yourself against others, but maybe like your, the expectations that are there that other people have for you, whether it's your parents or, or those, because it sounds like, unless you're clear on your values and what success means to you, then that just will drown out anything you want. Um, yeah. But I agree with the values thing, like when you tune into that, then you can't really fail, you know, in terms of you're just your own measure. Your yardstick is your your own definition. Um, but yeah, any sort of tips on how to dial down the external noise and sort of dial up the internal noise? Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny that it, it often comes up with people in midlife, just mm. at the point when their parents' influence is disappearing, you know, or reducing for whatever reason.
and uh, it can sometimes come after a bereavement or something like that. And folk really wake up to the fact that they are on their own in the world and they've really got to begin to engage with what really matters to them. Um, so there are life stages. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not far away from the midlife crisis stuff, this at all. There are life stages that you hit when it becomes the right thing to think about. But if you're in a really noisy environment with pressure from peers and parents saying, no, 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 you, that's just a hobby. You'll never make any money out of that. You know, uh, that's really, really hard to resist. You need to meditate on that for a while. Um, but you know what? The, the work that folk like you do is what gives people the space to engage with that really critically. Uh, I think when you get into an environment where there's loads of other people in the same kind of boat or at the same life stage, and you begin to realize that you're not alone, and that there's a platform there that gives you a valid opportunity to, you know, bring those insecurities out a little bit and say, there's something going on here, I'm not sure what it is, I need some help with this, and then find there are other people that will step up and provide that help, that's mm. key to doing it. So it's the, you know, asking for help is not an admission of failure. It's probably the most valuable thing you can ever, ever do. It, it, it's courage, you know, pure courage asking for help. I, I was just going to say, I also wonder, and it's something we battle with, is whether you almost need to get on the wrong ladder first to know that that's not the one for you. You know, you tried, like Carla said, you've tried doing the right thing, going to uni and going to get a job and getting... Yeah, ticking all the boxes basically but i'd love it if more people didn't feel the need to do that and tapped into that earlier yeah well i mean if schools were doing a job that they ought to be doing rather than job of, of supplying industry with widgets if you like that would be much more likely to happen if you look at you know the finnish education system for example where the curriculum is being pushed right into the background and children are being encouraged to learn through play much more and through their interaction with their peers, they come out of that much better rounded um, as individuals than they would do if they'd gone through the national curriculum and the set testing and all the rest of it. Mm. Yeah, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> uh, it's ironic that we have the word school in the title of... Uh... Yeah. what we do as a business but it is that alternative way of um i was gonna say conditioning it, basically school at the moment is conditioning people to think a different way i think it feels like what we're trying to do in the mission we're on is trying to recondition or unlearn so, yeah. people call it um to to open up to different possibilities and that aspect as well i think is is when you are surrounded by people who think one way uh, and you think another way, how hard that must feel and how difficult that must be. And to not know that there are other spaces, whether it's our community and there are many other communities out there, mm. balanced view, but for specifically our community, it's very much about creating that space where you're surrounded. A, it's a non-judgmental space. Mm. And I think talking mm. to your, uh, what you were saying before about meetings where you allow some diverse thinking and different people to in, to get involved by hosting it in the right way. I think one of the things that I've, I've identified with summer camp and, and our retreats is that you're trying to create a space where everyone can have a voice and you're not trying to, you're not, um, is not conditioned to certain people always being heard. And then when that feels safe, that what magic happens there and what 
changes that can happen because of that. So yeah. really appreciate There's it. There's a huge, huge difference between what you do and the gurus on Facebook or Instagram do where they're promising you the seven-figure income, you know. And people see those posts and either they just dismiss them as a, as a load of tosh straight away or they go and they investigate and they might do the comments and they might buy the thing, but they'll never do it again, you know. Come to summer camp or in, get involved in something like this. You go away and you start talking to other people about it. You know, I can't think of a group I've been in front of in the last 12 months where at some point during the conversations I've mentioned happy startups because it keys into people at a values level and they're really interested in the notion that there's something happening that's really different. Um, so, you know, you'll find that the right folk gravitate towards you because of what the folk that are already connected with you are doing um, to a very large extent, I would think, compared to other folk. And that's an interesting point there because... <clears throat> Uh, I, you know, I believe my, Lawrence and myself, at one level, we are ambitious. You know, we want mm -hmm. to make this uh, a really impactful endeavor where we get, you know, I think on one of our slide decks, two million people. So mm -hmm. thinking about happiness as a, as a business model. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, and you can hack yourself your way to that. You know, essentially, you mm -hmm. can really make that you know, the way people scale things is, is essentially, mm -hmm. you know, putting money and time behind it and effort and energy on it. But that, but then if that actually pulls away from the authenticity, in terms of if you're like basically um, hustling your way to success in five years, and the story you're trying to tell is like actually, <laughs> just consider, find your own values. Like, yeah. there's a there's a real interesting uh, when we're talking about values about just living them rather than just mm. trying to yeah. show them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go on, laminate them. I'll laminate them exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think it's um, something we battle with. I think a lot of, I'd say, more creative or social entrepreneurs battle with, isn't it? It's not just about, well, there's the, the tension between we want to change the world, whatever that means, mm. you know, but make an impact and spread the word of what you're doing to more people. But then also, you just want to go and sit on the beach as well. <laughs> <laughs> and And those two things can exist in the same, you know, day. Yeah, and it's something for me. It comes down to what you were talking about before, um, Pete, about just this idea of success. So, under, identifying what that really means, and and you know, myself and Lawrence, core to it, it isn't just about the money. There's, it's also about how it feels. This business, yeah. and we have a a, um, a co-founders agreement that we wrote one time with our good friend. Tom Nixon on his co-founders retreat and it's basically as soon as this doesn't sound feel like fun anymore we stop yeah. and that becomes part of why you're doing the business rather than just the money yeah. uh, and having that in mind as the as the driving force but then uh, you know balancing that with like okay the ambition of how can we get this out to more people how we can mm -hmm. how can we shout about this yeah. in a way that that feels uh, authentic and that, that i think part of the reason why i was i found this really important as a as a webinar for everyone else mm. who is manipulated or you know guided by these either ways of actually doing things of just hacking your way to success mm. how can we actually help them be more empowered to act in their own way 
Okay. That was a bit of a monologue there. I just like, yeah, <laughs> something that needed to come out. But is I think yeah. it's on the long, along the lines of um, how we can speak to to people who are wanting to take action. What is it that they can do, especially if they're they're um, um, yeah. They're, they're not comfortable with, with standing up mm. and chatting about the stuff that they do. Yeah. But they still want to make a change in the world. So how you frame that for people. Yeah. I think there's um, we all have a natural fear of failing at stuff. So we're held back from trying out the very stuff that we need to try out in order to know whether it's right for us. Uh, and I found that my favorite way of getting over any notion of failure is to treat everything as a test. Everything, even the things that I think are finished, are in fact a test. The Art of Shouting Quietly that I wrote five years ago is still a test. It's still out there. It's still provoking comments. I'm still learning a huge amount from this thing that effectively was finished five years ago. If you reframe it as a test, then it's about constantly learning from every single thing you do and modifying the learning and, and building that into the next thing that you're creating. So it becomes a, an ongoing process of learning and in fact, you never fail. You might take a tumble, you might lose some money. You know, when I did the crowdfunding campaign for the Art Shouting Quietly, I forgot to factor in the postage costs for folk overseas, because I didn't think that people would be buying it from 15 countries during the crowdfunding process. So I took a personal hit on that, you know, it was about 500 pounds, that was the difference between what I raised in the postage. Wow, what a tremendous failure to have, you know. Um, so it's being open-minded to the fact that if you create everything, every little post you do is a test, you know. I often put just single phrases up on Twitter to see whether anybody's interested in things or not, you know, and, and somebody goes, oh, yeah, that's really made me think. And I think, right, okay, there's something in that. How many people said that made them think? And I build it into something. Um, so I find that useful. I try and inoculate myself against feelings of failure by just reframing it as it's about something else. It's about finding out, actually. Hmm. What fits for me? What works for me? What do I feel comfortable with? There's something around there of like if you feel like whatever you need to put out has to be right or correct or hmm. perfect, then that isn't necessarily your chance to learn because you already know what you need to know. So you're not going to move forward necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, perfect. Perfectionism can really get in the way, I think, especially if you've been brought up to think you don't put it out there until it's perfect and it's properly parsed and every dot's dotted and commas commaed. Uh, that can really get in the way of stuff because, of course, perfectionism is not, it's not an achievable thing. And sports psychologists changed the way that certain sports people worked a few years ago when they actually stopped saying that you need to think of yourself as as better than the other person, better than the person that you're trying to vanquish on the, the tennis court or whatever. You just need to be good enough to do what's required. Good enough to beat Andy Murray, or good in fact, they said this to Andy Murray, you just need to be good enough to beat the other person on the court. 
once you've reframed it as that, it's much more achievable actually to create something that's just good enough to get you where you want to go, rather than thinking, my goodness me, is it perfect yet? I can't put it out there, I can't try it because it's not good enough. You know, it's not perfect. Mm. Actually, the, um, maybe we can jump into this question here from Esme or Esme. Hopefully, it's, uh, maybe it's my daughter. My daughter's called Esme. <laughs> but she asks, um, hi, as introverts, we are more likely to doubt ourselves, question, overthink, analyze. How do we get to the point where we feel that we are good enough, know enough, are ready to take the plunge and have the confidence to put ourselves out there? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to find those resources solely within yourself. I think the answer to that actually comes when you start communicating your ideas and your ambitions to other people and beginning to allow for the feedback and affirmation that you need to give you the confidence to move to the next stage. What I've done over the years is built up a secret group of critical friends who I try things out on before I go ever go public with them. And it's a reciprocal arrangement. You say, you know, I'll show you yours if you show, you show me mine, you know. And, and let's just help each other evaluate our ideas or check that blog post or whatever it is. And then once we've got a little bit of feedback, we'll feel more confident about moving to the next step. So, you know, when I write a book, it's been beta tested by people. It's been read in beta uh, as partial ebooks or blog posts or whatever many times before it even goes to the final editing stage. And it's done by these trusted folk uh, that I do the same thing for. And that will give you inevitably a huge boost of confidence because you've, you've tested the sample, but you've also had a bit of fun trying stuff out with your friends uh, beforehand. I hope that's helpful. That's wonderful. Lawrence, were you, any thoughts? No, I was just going to say, I think it's important to, like you said, have critical friends, not just friends you think will say what you want to hear. Um, that's an easy, it's easy to pull together. People just, just tell me nice things, but it sounds like constructive yeah. feedback is really important. Yeah, yeah. There's a principle in coaching called ruthless compassion. <laughs> you need to find people that are prepared to give you ruthless compassion, which is the equivalent of you wouldn't let a child stick their finger in the electrical socket, would you? You know, you'd kind of push them out of the way and say, if you do that, he'll die. And you need folk that are prepared to stand up and go, you know, you know, you need to be careful there, Pete. That could be one of the biggest bloopers you ever made. Uh, think it, think it through a little bit more. Let's try it again. <laughs> I love yeah. the idea of having that group around you. Um, and that's kind of the reason why our community exists. And another, so, so to add on to this thing is, uh, I was reading around the idea of psychological safety and how you create that in particularly for teams and, and making something happen. Uh, and what I read was the one of the least psychological safe places is in your head on your own, because you're your own worst critic. Um, so having people who can be ruthlessly compassionate mm-hmm. on that as well. I, I also feel that having people who know when to be that quite ruthless critic. And because if you squash an idea too early, if you have people who are, you know, I know friends and family immediately say, no, don't do that because there's something mm. they, they want to protect you. But if you don't have a chance to nurture that really crazy idea at the beginning, 
mm. and someone just squashes it straight away because it's not a great idea, oh. then that could have been the most amazing thing for you in your life, but you just didn't have a chance yeah. to really develop it through a conversation, which I think is what you're talking about yeah. by sharing it with people. Yeah. I think there's a difference between well-meaning criticism, which is what you've just described, where people intervene because they think you're going to make a big mistake and hurt yourself, or often because they think you're going to do something that might hurt them or offend them in some way. The difference between that and ruthless compassion, which is a set of rules, coaching rules and ethics around it that say, you know, do no harm, basically. Uh, if it's not kind or useful, don't say it, basically. And have you really thought through before you dished out your ruthless compassion? Because if you haven't thought it through, it's not ruthless compassion, it's something else. Awesome. Well, it feels like for Esme and anyone who's um, who classes them in that space where they don't, you know, they're, they're a bit fearful of putting something out there because they're not sure that they're ready is to create this what we call the personal advisory group. Someone, you know, a group of people maybe similar to you who also struggle with getting ideas out into the world and have that agreement of ruthless compassion so that you feel safe to put an idea out there, but you know the advice or feedback that comes comes from a good place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the sort of our friends, Lana Yelelenyev, who, who's helping us on our 2020 vision program, she has a real interesting and um, concept also how to give feedback in a way that is really useful and powerful rather than just giving advice that might not be necessary. And so if you can create that space yeah. for you, it feels like you'll be in a great place as me. Yeah, one thing I was going to say was, I think she also touched on, like, I'm good enough, not just what I put out is good enough. I think that's a really important distinction we found is, you know, having that group might, there might be a point at which you, maybe it's the beginning where you need to build your belief and confidence before you even think of putting ideas out there. And so maybe it's trying to separate, you know, the idea of the thing failing or the thing not working first um, from your own personal worth. And I think if you can get a group who can build your confidence and belief and maybe see things in yourself that you don't see in yourself, then then you're more resilient, I think, when things don't go to plan. And like you said, Pete, it's all about learning, isn't it? So you can't yeah. really fail. You'll always learn something. Yeah. There's a, there's a technique, a coaching technique called the evidence wall, where you just basically get a huge sheet of paper and you take everything that anybody's ever said about you that's any good and you print it off and stick it up on the wall and then you think through on a reverse timeline all of the, the great, your best bits, if you like, all of the great things that you've done, you write them down, you stick them on the evidence wall, you build up of yourself this really nice mosaic of all the cool stuff you've ever done and just doing that and i recommend you do it you know uh, in a fairly regular basis and keep updating it you then begin to create a different picture in your mind of who you actually are and and what you've done because we forget don't we yeah. we forget the great stuff yeah uh, that we've done it just drifts into our past timeline and it's gone and our confidence kind of slumps if for some reason we're at a point in our life where we're not achieving in the way that we think we ought or as confident as we feel we ought to be. I think I've got something like that. It's called my Instagram feed. <laughs> it's all the best bits of my life. <laughs> if you went all the way back to the beginning, there's stuff on there you've forgotten about. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, it's great and spooky how Facebook and Instagram reminds you of this stuff. <laughs> uh, and a bit sad because I think a couple of weeks ago, 
it reminded uh, Lawrence and myself that we were supposed to be at altitude. Oh, <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, those memories. <laughs> uh, we have a, another question here from Paul. I thought we'd just dive into while we're doing the questions. And if you have any other questions, please post them into the into the question um, a feature here on Crowdcast. So Paul is asking, do you think that feelings of regret are tied more to introverts than extroverts? Interesting one. Oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> I've, never an, I've never asked an extrovert that question. <laughs> I have no empirical data to answer it on. Um, and I, I think it's it's also what what is the regret? Is it something that you haven't done or haven't done yet? Or something that got left behind in your past timeline um, somewhere? that you never got around to realizing because regret has all sorts of different facets to it and is it something you can pick up and uh, on the, the ball on again and run with again possibly in a different way hmm. i don't know but I, i'm not in a position to make a direct comparison as to whether it's more of the field of introverts or extroverts yeah. so I, I would approach that from a coaching point of view is what is it and how do we work with it and how do we transmute that feeling into something uh, for the future? I think there's a, you know, on the surface, uh, without knowing more about behind what's the, the question, Paul, there may be a perception because extroverts are louder and doing things and introverts are quiet and you're not necessarily seeing what they're doing, that they're not taking action because of something. And then, you know, take, talking to what we were saying before that, you know, you may think of introverts or quiet people as people who are just considering and thinking. Mm -hmm. I think there is that separation between considerate thought and ruminating over past mistakes. Mm -hmm. Those, I, the way I understood what Pete was saying before, they're separate. They're not necessary. And maybe extroverts and introverts also have regrets. It's just that because introverts or the way we classed it before, quiet people, they might seem like people who who think doesn't necessarily mean they ruminate um yeah. that's how i would interpret that but um yeah. but yes a chunky uh, yeah it seems to be some it's much more of a personal question there rather than a, a generalization that we can we can do and also yeah. we don't want to Somebody leave just asked, sorry uh, nate just asked um where can i find out more about the evidence wall of the reverse timeline I think you're going to pass on to everybody a complimentary copy of the ebook of the Art of Shouting Quietly, and the reverse timeline is one of the exercises. You spoiled a surprise, Pete. <laughs> Don't worry, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we will do, and uh, you'll, you'll, all of you here who, who've um, yeah. turned up live, will uh, I'll send you an email with a uh, with a link to the book so that you can get a again. Basically, all the beautiful nuggets of wisdom that, that Pete's already um, shared with us here. Um, so, yeah, thinking of finishing off a bit, talking a bit about action more. Uh, you know, we've, we've said uh, this idea of having the right people around you so that you can, uh, you know, essentially um, test ideas, the idea of testing. Mm -hmm. um, Lawrence talked about actually rather than thinking of a success being about – or uh something being good enough less about you but the, about the thing that you're putting out there and i link that to also your thing about actually these are all experiments we're all just here to learn stuff rather than prove our mm. self-worth by making things happen 
Oh, lots of love coming from the chat of <laughs> the book. Uh, easily pleased. <laughs> um, but there's, uh, uh, I think, in terms of just helping people think about what does it mean to to create these these tests, and um, and when it also comes to this idea of um, getting your message out there, getting a word, you know, trying to build a profile for yourself as mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, a quiet entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can leave people with some some ways to start or some ways to think that will stop the the uh, inaction. Yeah, I I think um, from an introvert or a quiet person's point of view, it's very difficult to build your own audience for all sorts of reasons. There's the confidence thing, there's the introversion thing, there's not wanting to stick your head above the parapet. All of those things come into play. And other people's voices are the thing that are really going to help you. And all it needs is for you to find, for instance, a a podcaster or a blogger or somebody that writes for a magazine that deals with the particular area of work that you're involved in and get them to offer you an interview or some editorial space or whatever. You've then got somebody else speaking on your behalf. And you've got something that's got a link attached to it that you can keep feeding into your social media that isn't you just talking about yourself. So that's a big thing that's really helpful. The other thing is that, and I know people find these really difficult to ask for, but but testimonials, simply having somebody else say something about your work and say it was really good or I enjoyed that session or they're a real expert in the field and using those things on your website, your social media, other people talking about yourself giving folk information that they can share on your behalf. Um, so if you if you do a talk or run a workshop, um, make sure folk have got stuff to take away with them because they will go away and talk about what you do and they will share that. And that's audience building as well. So we move away from the notion of having to sell yourself and you move into the area of raising awareness, just communicating a little bit more effectively and, and using the power of the folk that you know. We don't even have to use the networking world. It's just within the people you know. You know what, in the creative industries, if I if I got a typical group of artists in front of me and said, how many of you think your parents actually really know what you do? You know, or your aunties or uncles or your granny and granddad, most of them would go, I haven't really told them, you know. And we forget, don't we, that we've got, We've already got a network, most of us, uh, in friends and family and those that are close to us and folk down the pub. And um, You never know who's sitting beside you. Uh, serendipity is enormously powerful. Uh, I've got a TEDx t-shirt on here. I did TEDx a few years back. And, and it's pure serendipity. That, yeah, um, I... I Said to a coach, yeah, let's all do the t-shirt. Completely lost track of what I was saying. I, 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 co- I got coached by somebody that I'd known for about 10 years. And um, she said, Pete, what do you really want to achieve this year? Uh, and I said, I'd really like to do a TEDx talk. And she looked at me and said, I organized them. And I'd known this person for years. And I, did, she, I didn't know and she didn't know. And it struck up a conversation. I still had to go through the competitive process. 
but it left me feeling, you know, I wonder how many things I've missed simply through not talking about it to the person that's sitting beside me. And uh, we're, we're quite bad at that as a culture in this country, I think. You know, you go to America, it's the other way around. People, you sit beside a complete stranger on the plane and instantly they're telling you about everything they're doing. It's quite powerful. I can't, I can't really do it myself. I'm not that good at mm -hmm. breaking up conversations with strangers on public transport. But, uh, you know, to tell people, just tell more people what you're doing. The message I got that is just linking to what um, we were talking about before about, you know, defining your own version of success. I think from the book, there's this idea of creating a dream list hmm. of the things that, you know, you'd really love to do. Uh, and what made me think is like we don't talk enough about our dreams. Hmm. And to be able to capture that or at least be clear about your dreams to begin with, what is it you really want to do? And to be able to speak that hmm. yeah. to then see what comes up. Like you said, I've always wanted to do a TEDx yeah. talk. Where did that, you know, how does that manifest? Because by, by yeah. even just saying the words. Yeah. I think the dream list, which you're, you're right, is in the book there, is a listing, beginning to list the things, the key things you want to achieve or the key clients that you want to work with, key organizations or institutions that you want to, to generate some kind of partnership with. It's a brilliant first stage because it lays it all out there. And unless you lay it out there as a list, you're not going to move towards it anyway. But then you can do specific tactical things like identify one of those key targets and then find somebody that's already done that or somebody that's already working with that institution and go and have a conversation with them. I, there's a, I work at Hereford College of Art with the blacksmiths every year doing business planning with blacksmiths, which is a fantastic challenge because they just really want to be in the forge hitting things. Um, <laughs> And the, in blacksmithing, there's a traditional called journeymanship, where they go and apprentice themselves to blacksmiths around the country and around the world. And one of them is saying, I really want to do a journeymanship in Canada, but I don't know where to start. And there's a concept that I use called building the bridge from the other end, which is getting on to social media and tracking down interest groups in the other country that you're interested in building a bridge with and finding some individuals that can almost become pen pals around your shared interest. And mm. it's from them that you'll begin to get the ideas and the information and the knowledge of the organizations um, that you can then connect with to build the bridge from both ends. But getting the wisdom of somebody that's been down the, the path before you is a, a major first step, I think. Mm. Um I think to, f to finish off, one thing that sprang to mind in this, in terms of this idea of um, getting the word out about what you do, and you talk about, you know, we should talk more to people. Um, there's still maybe that hesitancy is like, oh, I'm still still talking about myself. Mm -hmm. uh, how can you, you know, one of the things I remember from the book is the, the idea of thinking about it in terms of generosity. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can speak, finally just speak to that about how talking about what you do or how you can frame this idea of thinking about generosity as a way to, to self-promote. I don't know if there's something mm -hmm. you, you can speak to, Pete. Mm -hmm. I think asking for help is a reciprocal thing. You know, if, you, if you're going to go and ask somebody for help, it's useful to have something to offer in return. How can you create um, 
a piece of interaction where both parties gain from it. You know, you, you might have just something very simple you can give to another person in re return for a little bit of their knowledge. And that, that opens up a tremendous amount of goodwill and, and might just help you take the step that you need to. G generosity, being open, going and doing stuff for and with other people, volunteering is one aspect of it. I'm not so sure about the doing stuff for free. That's a whole different conversation. And I think tactically that can be useful, but you should avoid it if folk are exploiting you, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a two-way street. You know, how do you connect with other people and get access to their knowledge by offering something in return? Hmm. I definitely... Uh, within our community and, and some of the more experienced people that we have, that they actually get something from helping as well. Hmm. When you know, when you feel, oh, I don't want to ask, uh, you know, ask for help, particularly if there's they're, they're um, they may be a higher level in environment covers than you, mm -hmm. to actually realize that sometimes by asking for help, they the person that they uh, feel flattered, they feel like a sense of contribution mm. is actually something that they get something from it as well. So. Yeah. Uh, I definitely um, hear this idea, right? You know, there is a re there there can be a potentially a reciprocal benefit from asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the other angle around generosity was. Sorry, you're going to say something, Pete? No, it's okay. You carry on. No, in terms of um, when you're thinking about talking about what you do, thinking about it in the spirit of you want to make sure the right people hear about what you're doing because you're trying to reach or you're not trying to help someone out there so less about oh look at me i'm really good but more about how can i make sure the thing that i have the gifts that i have reach the right people because if mm. i don't say anything about it or talk to anyone about it then someone out there might not be able to benefit from something i could really give them yeah absolutely and i mean we're getting we're getting into there into the identifying more and more carefully who your tribe actually are and who the folk are that can really benefit from what it is you've got to offer and then going out maybe doing some talks around it or introducing some key concepts that you've found very useful that you can share freely with them um, that's a whole different ball game to going out and working for somebody else for free then it becomes a contribution a nice little presentation or a talk or even a, a well-constructed video if you're shy about getting up in front of people that you can share for folk uh, pro bono um, to get them introduced to the ideas in the way that they're already learning in fact from that first thing that you've shared with them is just a fabulous thing to do brilliant awesome did you have anything to add lawrence um yeah i think it's whatever platform well what Ever medium works for you, really. I would say maybe writing as well. For I found writing is a great way for us to build our community, certainly at the beginning. And I found it the most powerful medium for me to get my voice heard. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think the thing that struck me was what I, when I see people who we've got to collaborate with and, like you said, not trying to, it sounds like trying not to reinvent the wheel by creating your own audience, but maybe, you know, immersing yourself in other people's similar values to you and so yeah. yeah the people that we've got to know who've contributed to our community we've 
got to know them first and foremost as people and then through that have then been able to create a platform for their work so yeah maybe there's communities out there that you could contribute to with an intention of not just taking something but like you said being generous about your time and, and yes there might be payback but not just seeing it as a, a quick way to a sale and I think that's probably the hard part with all of this is it's if you play the long game and try and do the right thing it's not going to be a quick fix but it might be more sustainable in the long run yeah yeah the thing i think that's really valuable is you never know when somebody first hopped onto your timeline it could be years ago they could have been watching what you're doing for a very very long time before they even come to your attention and before they even ask for anything or buy a product because they build people build up their impression of you and what you do through a whole range of different interactions. It's not just the one killer post that does it. That, that's not the way to do it. It's just to drip feed stuff about yourself and your values and what you do and share stuff from other people that reflects your own values over a long period of time. The folk that, that need to be in your you know, in your audience will find their way there, uh, not just from the one thing, but from many different things that you've done. Mm. There's a great Adam Grant quote about he wrote the book Give and Take, and if you've read that book, but um, something about you can't expect to glean the benefits from a network, you need to invest in the relationships mm. and activities. And I think that's a great line because I think it's so true. We want to, we want the results without the effort sometimes. So I think the hard part is knowing where to spend your time, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant, good stuff. Thank you very much, Pete. Um, yeah. this part of the this part of the call is, is the shameless promotion part. <laughs> <laughs> so anything that you would like to share with people where they can, well, you know, essentially finding out more about you if they don't know you already or anything that you would love to point them to? They, I think just if you hop on to, if you're a LinkedIn person, I'm on LinkedIn. If you're on Twitter, it's at Pete Mosley. Um, or if you just want to find out more about the stuff I do uh, and the book and the confidence toolkit that I'm promoting at the moment, just go to PeteMosley.com um, and it's just a single page website with, with a very simple navigation bar at the top and you'll find most reference to most of the stuff I've been talking about in or on there. Thank you very much. Excellent. So PeteMosley.com if you want to find all the different great resources and Lawrence has shared a link into the chat thank you and um yeah as a thank you to everyone who attended live I will be emailing you a copy of Pete's book the art of shouting quietly so that's a great thank you to you all for for joining us here and supporting this this call it's always great the energy we get by seeing the people on here and the interactions and the questions is really important for us as well like we we're not here just to talk at, out to the void it's good to know that there are people here listening um on uh, other stuff uh, we have a program called the 2020 vision program that will be that we just completed a couple of weeks ago and it'll be starting again in september uh lawrence i don't know if you wanted to share um what's coming up with that for people who are interested uh the main thing if anyone's interested we've got an open day coming up it's going to be on zoom myself you and lana you mentioned who's our other coach on the program um is going to be quite a small group of people who've either done it before like alumni are going to kind of contribute as well as us answering questions to those that are interested so if you're interested in that 
um, fill out the form on the 2020 website, which I'll stick here, and um, we'll get in touch to give you the invite to that call. Fantastic. So for those of you who don't know, the 2020 Vision Programme, it's our effort to help people who want to create an exit strategy for the next decade. So whether you're making a shift in your business or you want to level up the way you're working without burning out, and a bit to what Pete was talking about, you know, what is the dream that you want to create? And then how can you do that with this group of people around you who are going to support you in a compassionately critical way um, so that you get the things that you need to get done? And and the, the most valuable part of it that we found is the accountability. We all have these dreams that we want to create and the things that stop us is mainly our, our distraction. So we're going to give you some time to focus on it and make that happen. So if that's of interest to you, please join us on the 15th of July. Thank you very much, Pete. Again, it's really a pleasure and it's so energizing to hear from you and also just heartwarming to just to know that there's a kindred spirit out there uh, that, that believes in the way of doing business that we do. Yeah, thanks, Pete. It's Thank been you. great. Thank you one or two have loved the accent. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that one. Brilliant. You take care, everyone, and uh, see you next week when we'll be talking to Alan Wick. And we'll be talking about business uh, and yeah. purpose. Uh, Pete knows Alan well. Yeah, Is yeah, he one, yeah. one of your clients, um, maybe? <laughs> fab chat, Alan. Yeah, don't miss that one. Yeah, Alan's great. It's the last one, actually, isn't it? Yes, before the summer. So yeah. Looking forward to uh, ending off, uh, ending in a bang. Yeah, he's, an, he's another kind of ex-hippie musician like yourself, Pete. <laughs> cool. All right, take care, everyone. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Happy Entrepreneur podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Also, if you'd like to learn more about being a happy entrepreneur and want to connect with more people like you, then go to our website, thehappystartupschool.com, and subscribe to our newsletter. Amongst many other things about business and life, we'll help you answer the following questions. How can I serve others by being myself? And how can I discover who I really am by serving others?